0: All right, well, we are continuing in our sermon series, Epic, Great God, Great Stories Today, and I'll mention that I've decided to lengthen this series, so we're likely to stick with it through at least the month of July uh, before moving on to something else, probably in August. We might take a week or two pause uh, somewhere in there to talk about some other topics, but uh, largely we'll stick with this series through July And while it certainly won't enable us to get to all of the great stories in the Old Testament, at least we'll be able to cover uh, several more of them, which there are just so many great stories in the Old Testament uh, that I just find myself kind of enjoying uh, being reminded of these stories and reflecting on the lessons that they give us uh, again. So today we're looking at part of the story of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is usually most quickly associated with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, And that is the part of the story uh, that we have in focus today. Uh, Daniel was a contemporary of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, He was carried into captivity in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar at the exact same time uh, they were. Of course, we talked about them a few weeks or so ago. Uh, Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's name was also changed by the Babylonians from Daniel to Belteshazzar. Uh, Like them, Daniel was identified by the Babylonians as having such excellent qualities uh, that they put him in line to begin to serve in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And he he did that, and he served Nebuchadnezzar uh, well and with distinction throughout Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was eventually replaced by his son, Belshazzar. And then Belshazzar was eventually replaced by Darius, who ruled Babylon on behalf of the Persian king, Cyrus. And if you read through the book of Daniel, all of those leadership transitions have incredibly fascinating stories, epic stories in their own right. Uh, I wish we could talk about all of them, but we don't don't have time for that today. The part of Daniel's story we're looking at today is found in the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will read different parts as we get to the various aspects of the story. I do encourage you to read the entire thing this week. So when we pick up in chapter six, Daniel is serving Darius and he is serving him in an exemplary manner. We find in chapter 6 that Darius had genuine appreciation and care for Daniel because Daniel had served him so well. When Darius became uh, the king, when he assumed the leadership of Babylon, he appointed 120 satraps uh, or governors. We'll probably go with governors the rest of the day. Uh, and then he placed three administrators over these governors. And Daniel was one of the three administrators. These, these 120 governors, uh, uh, several of them, many of them, were answerable to Daniel, this Israelite uh, living in a foreign country. And I want you to see in the text what an exemplary man Daniel was. Here's what Daniel 6 3 tells us about him. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He served with such excellence that Darius wanted to put him in charge of the entire place. What a truly exceptional person. Wouldn't it be great if all of us were such truly exceptional people? People who serve so well that those who are over us want to put us in charge of their affairs. Now, not because we're striving for some kind of position, but just because we serve with such excellence it's just who we are. May that be true of us. May that be true of us. We're told that Daniel's excellence angered the other administrators and satraps. And so they tried to find charges, to, uh, tr- tried to find grounds to bring charges against Daniel in his administration of the government affairs. They were jealous of Daniel. And so then this sets us up to learn even more about Daniel as a person, even more about Daniel's character. We're told that they were unable to find grounds for charges against Daniel. Here's what we find in verse 4. They could find no corruption in him. None. His enemies could find no corruption. Because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And then verse 5 says... Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel. I'll get to the rest of that verse in a minute. So we find that Daniel was so exceptional that the king wanted to put him in charge of the whole place. We find that he was trustworthy. There was no corruption in him. There was no basis for charge against him. But you know how it is. When unscrupulous government officials decide that someone needs to be taken down, a little thing like the truth can't be allowed to get in the way. Some things never change. And so Daniel became the target of the other administrators and satraps, and they set out to find a way to bring him down and to move him out of the way. So this is the kind of man Daniel is. And now let's consider the kind of men who opposed Daniel. We find in the text that they were duplicitous men. They tricked King Darius into making a decree that they knew would force him to do something about Daniel. And here's how they did it. They went into the king in a flattering way, and they made a proposal to him that they knew would put Daniel directly in the crosshairs. Here's what we find in verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, See how flattering they start off, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. All of us have agreed, Darius. This should settle it. We're all in agreement. How many times do you hear that when somebody's up to no good? We've all agreed. That you're a problem. That's not what they're saying to Darius, but it's what we sometimes hear. We've all agreed. We've all agreed that the king should issue issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, should be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree, put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now we're led to believe as you read through the chapter, at least it seems this way to me, that Darius likely would not have issued the decree if he had thought in the moment Of what it was going to mean for his trusted advisor, Daniel. But the administrators and the satraps, they manipulated Darius. You see, kings of the time often considered themselves to to be supreme. Actually, they considered themselves to be deity. And so coming to him with this type of proposal, what they're doing is they're, they're manipulating him. They're aggrandizing him. They're, uh, they're feeding into his vanity to manipulate him to do something detrimental to his friend Daniel. And so these were duplicitous and manipulative men. And they were men who would stoop to use Daniel's faith against him. Verse 5. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Huh. Now that we can work with. Here's an important thing to note. If anything about Daniel's faith Would have impacted his ability to do the job that Darius had for him, then you might, might be able to view this as a legitimate concern. But here's what we know Daniel's faith in God was having no negative impact on his performance for Darius. He was so exceptional that Darius put him in charge, wanted to put him in charge of everything. So there was nothing legitimate about this tactic to bring charges against Daniel based on his faith. It was, a, it was a despicable act. It really was. You know, we've actually seen a similar thing play out in our own politics in just the last couple of weeks. I've tried to stay away from political topics uh, really hard. And it is hard for me. But uh, there's one that's happened in the last, uh, I think, week, 10 days or so that really needs to be talked about. Russell Vaught, an evangelical Christian, has been nominated to serve as the deputy director of the White House Office of Management and Budget. Within the past uh, week or so, at his confirmation hearing, uh, Bernie Sanders, our lovable socialist senator from Vermont, former presidential candidate, attacked him and accused him of being unqualified for public office for no other reason than his affirmation of Christian doctrine. Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution forbids what Sanders did, declaring that there should be no religious test ever to be required as a qualification to any office or public trust in the United States. Russell Moore, normally a very congenial man, said this in response to Sanders. Senator Sanders' comments are breathtakingly audacious, uh, audacious and shockingly ignorant. And I can just stop there. <laughs> just leave it right there. Shockingly Ignorant both of the Constitution and of basic Christian doctrine. Even if one were to excuse Senator Sanders for not realizing that all Christians of every age have insisted that faith in Jesus Christ is the only pathway to salvation, it is inconceivable that Senator Sanders would cite religious beliefs as disqualifying an individual for public office in defiance of the U.S. Constitution." No religious test shall ever be required of those seeking public office. While no one expects Senator Sanders to be a theologian, we should expect far more from an elected official who has taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution. It's absolutely awful what Sanders has done. Vaught seems otherwise to be well qualified, and yet Sanders was trying to use his faith, and only his faith, to turn people against him. Not a good thing. Daniel was an exceptional man, mistreated by despicable men who used his faith against him in a shameful way. And their despicable act resulted in a shameful decree. Darius did enact the decree that made it illegal to pray to any god for 30 days. And so the trap has been set for Daniel. There is now a decree in place that's incumbent on everyone in Babylon to obey. Daniel is a high-ranking official. Obedience to Darius' decree is expected. And so Daniel has a decision to make. To this point, he had served Darius with distinction because he had been able to do so while remaining faithful and obedient to God. But now he's presented with a situation where he cannot both obey Darius and still be faithful and obedient to God. And so he had to choose. Will he obey God or will he obey Man. We fear man enough that he compromises his faithfulness and obedience to God. You've likely faced this choice yourself at some point in your life. And if you haven't, it's just a matter of time. I actually think we're approaching a time when many of us will be placed in situations where we're going to have to decide. Will I succumb to a public demand that requires me to compromise my allegiance to Christ, or will I remain obedient to Jesus, refusing to give in to the fear of man? Daniel chose to courageously obey God instead of man. I've titled today's message, Daniel, A Profile in Courageous Obedience, because that's what Daniel is. He provides us an example of courageous obedience to God, an example of refusing to give in to the fear of man and choosing to honor God instead. In fact, it doesn't really appear to me that Daniel had to struggle with this decision at all. He, he was so committed to God that it really wasn't even something that, that he had to wrestle with. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. I love this next line. Just as he had done before. Nothing changed. The shameful decree doesn't change what Daniel's going to do. Daniel would serve Darius faithfully until, until serving Darius conflicted with serving God. And then Daniel did what any follower of God must do. He disobeyed Darius and he obeyed God. Friends, most of us can live our lives, working our jobs, going to our schools, participating in our culture that is far from God, and we can maneuver through all of that while remaining faithful to God. But every once in a while, a situation is forced upon us where you cannot obey the command of the boss and still be faithful to God. Where you can't do what the professor is telling you to do and still be faithful to God. Where you simply cannot avoid a conflict with the culture if you're going to remain faithful and obedient to God. When placed in a situation where he cannot be faithful to both Darius and God, Daniel courageously remains obedient to God. He prays just as he had done before. And you know Daniel has just a wonderful track record of obeying God instead of man. The first chapter of the book of Daniel tells us of Daniel refusing to eat the king's food. You are probably familiar with this story, at least many of you. Probably he refused to eat the king's food either because it was food that the Israelites considered unclean or perhaps because it was food that had been sacrificed to an idol. But the key thing here is that way back when he had first been brought to Babylon and prepared to serve the king as a, as a captive, as a slave... At the very first instance where Babylon required something of him that was going to compromise his obedience to God, Daniel said, nope, not going to do that. Okay, I know I'm a captive. I know you could kill me. Not doing it. Can't make me. I won't. No equivocation no waffling, no uncertainty. He would cooperate until the point that cooperation compromised fidelity to God. And then the cooperation ended. Daniel obeyed God instead of Darius and he faced death for for obedience to God. Daniel's despicable enemies went and spied on him. They discovered him doing exactly what they knew he would be doing when they set this thing in motion. They discovered him praying. And they went to Darius and they reminded him of his decree without informing him that it was Daniel who violated the decree. They got Darius to confirm that this violation was punishable by being thrown into a lion's den. Uh, Darius did that. He affirmed the decree, and, and he affirmed once again that because of the law of the Medes and Persians, the decree could not be repealed. And as soon as Darius had affirmed all of these things about the decree, these evil men then informed him that it was Daniel who had violated it. Verse 14 When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. But he was trapped. He couldn't figure out how to do it. To to violate the law would likely have placed him in jeopardy with Cyrus. And so Darius carried out the decree, and he had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. As Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, we're told that Darius said to him, May your God whom you serve continually, rescue you. And then a stone was placed over uh, the mouth of the lion's den. Darius's seal was placed on the stone, indicating that this matter was settled. It could not be changed. And Darius went home. And the Scripture tells us he was so troubled that he could not sleep. Evidently, Daniel's exceptional character had caused Darius to develop great respect for Daniel's God. And there's a good lesson there for us. Because we find something very interesting in verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? there's almost a note of expectation mixed in with the anguish. Perhaps because of Daniel's excellent character, perhaps Darius knew of the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe both. But he seems to have some expectancy that Daniel's God, whom he calls the living God, just might have preserved Daniel's life. And of course, that is exactly what happened. Verse 21, Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty." And at this scripture tells us that Darius was overjoyed. He had Daniel lifted out of the lion's den. We're told that there was not a single wound found on him. And then Darius ordered that the men who conspired against Daniel should now be thrown themselves into the lion's den. And we're told that before they reached the floor of the den, the lions had overpowered them and crushed their bones. So, so much for the idea that the lions just weren't hungry while Daniel was in there. God allowed them to get hungry at just the right time, if that's the case. So Daniel is delivered and his enemies receive justice. And then we're told that Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples in all the earth. And I think what he he wrote is uh, worth our reading. He, He writes to them, Uh, May you prosper greatly. This is the next slide if I didn't call it out. So uh, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. This This is a pagan king saying this. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now these Old Testament kings, as I noted with Nebuchadnezzar, they never quite appreciate the irony of replacing a decree forbidding worship of Yahweh with a decree compelling worship of Yahweh. I mean, they just don't quite get it. Uh, But otherwise, these affirmations of Yahweh and his writing are just, Truth packed, they're just, they're awesome. But what an awesome glorification of, of Yahweh. And the chapter ends by telling us that Daniel prospered during the reigns of Darius and Cyrus. So that's the story. And I think it certainly qualifies as an epic story. And there are great lessons in this story for us. There certainly are lessons about the importance of being people committed to serving with excellence in every area of human endeavor. In every circumstance of our lives, we of all people should be those who stand out as trustworthy and dependable and excellent in how we handle our business. There's a lesson here about how our character can cause people to hold a positive view of our God. Our character reflects well on the God we serve. That's why the bumper sticker, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, is true, but it can also be a tad bit annoying. Because we ought to try a little harder than what we do. We really, really should try harder. But the lesson that arises above all the others from this story, I think, is this one. Like Daniel... We are to be people who live in obedience to God with no fear of man. No fear of man. Are you facing any temptation right now to give in to the fear of man? Maybe you've entered into a dating relationship with someone who doesn't share your faith in God. Not a good move. But maybe you've already done it and now you're so far down the path that you care deeply for this person. But not only are they not a believer themselves, but they're antagonistic toward your faith in God. And not only that, but they're actively trying to get you to compromise your obedience to God. You're overcome with fear, you have fear of being alone. You have fear that if this relationship doesn't turn out, maybe you won't find someone else. And because you have this fear, you're tempted to compromise your obedience to God. You're tempted to give in to the fear of man. Will you give in or will you be courageously obedient to God, refusing to compromise, even if it costs you That relationship. Your boss is instructing you to bill your client for more hours than the project has actually taken. Will you give in to the fear of man? Or will you be courageously obedient to God even if you lose your job? Your comparative religions professor is insisting that you take part in a Buddhist ritual. Will you give in to the fear of man? Or will you be courageously obedient to God even if you fail a class that you have to pass? I, uh, I think I've only watched the show one time in my entire life, but I watched the show Amazing Race several months ago. And there was this Christian young man that when I first saw him do this, I actually thought, well, I guess that's okay. But the more I thought about it, I thought, oh, no, it's just hideous. It's just horrible. One of the things that they had to do, and I forget which religion it was, but they had to go into a temple of a false religion, and they had to kneel at the front of the temple, and they had to say a prayer to the deity of the temple. And so he kneeled in front of this thing, And he, he did what he had to do, and then he said, God, you know I don't mean any of that. <laughs> and when I first saw him do that, I thought, well, okay. I mean, but the more I thought about no. You can't do that. You can't do that to, to win the amazing race. You can't do that for a million dollars or whatever the prize money is. You, you can't bow before a pagan deity and offer up a prayer and then say, "I'll take back. I don't really mean it. I can't do that. Have to be courageously obedient to God. Here's one that may not be all that far from confronting some of us, many of us. If the Lord delays His coming long enough, maybe all of us, your company requiring you to sign a disclosure stating that all faiths are equally acceptable to God. Asking you to affirm the goodness of lifestyles that the Bible forbids. Don't think it's not going to happen. Don't think it's not going to happen. I I have direct testimony from one of our own members that every year they're asked to sign something that says they affirm lifestyles that are displeasing to God. And every year so far they've written in there, I do not. And they've just been waiting you just been waiting for the shoe to drop. Don't think that's not going to happen. When it's your job, your livelihood, will you give in to the fear of man or will you be courageously obedient to God? Each of us can probably think of some challenge to our faith that we are either facing right now or we can anticipate the possibility of facing in the future. When you cannot reconcile your faith in God with what is being demanded of you by someone who is in a position of power over your life, has the ability to do real damage to your life, what will you do? The story of Daniel is a profile in courageous obedience. He was courageous under the threat of death. And friends, I'm telling you, when these kind of situations come to us, there is only one response for a Christian. Refuse the fear of man and be courageously obedient to God. That is the only response for a Christian. Don't overbill the client. You just don't do it. Even if it costs you your job. Don't let your boyfriend or girlfriend cause you to be disobedient to God. If they leave you because you won't have sex with them, good. We're not rabbits. We don't have to have sex. You all got a kick out of that one, didn't you? I should have broke that out before. Don't participate in the Buddhist ritual. Be courageously obedient to God. That's the job of a Christian. That is the only answer, no matter the threat that we're under for choosing that path. Now, I want to admit something to you today. I probably shouldn't admit this. Michelle will probably tell me when I get home that I shouldn't have admitted this to you, but I am going to. I struggle with some of these Old Testament stories because in so many cases, the person in the story is faithful to God in the face of some threat, and then they're delivered out of the threat. Not in all, but in many, I would almost say most of these stories the person is faithful, and then they get delivered out of the problem. Gideon defeats the Midianites against great odds. The children of Israel, against all odds, march around the walls of Jericho. The walls fall down. They're, they're uh, victorious. Moses is placed in a snake-infested river as an infant and is rescued. If that had been me, I would have been bitten by the snakes. It goes on and on and on. You're faithful. You get delivered. And these stories can leave the impression that if we just have enough faith, no matter the opposition against us, everything's always going to turn out good. And it sets us up for disappointment. Because in our own experience, the story does not always end with our escaping trouble. And of course, this is demonstrated in the Bible as well, but so many times we we overlook those stories. Sometimes we're courageously obedient to God, we lose our job, and we have a really hard time finding another one. Sometimes we're courageously obedient to God, we lose a relationship, and we don't get it back. Sometimes we're courageously obedient to God, we get a bad grade or fail a class, and we do not graduate. Sometimes we are courageously obedient to God and we die. That's what happened to Jim Elliot. He took the gospel to the unreached Harani people of Ecuador. He was courageously obedient to God and he was killed by the very people he was trying to bring freedom to. Of course, Jim Elliot famously said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What an amazing, amazing statement. Friends, there are always two ways that any story can end. When we are obedient in the face of the threat, one way is that we're delivered. The other way is that we aren't. We are never to view obedience as a means of trying to force God's hand to deliver us. Obedience is not the way we force God to make every situation turn out as we desire. We're not obedient to God to get something from God. We are obedient to God because God deserves Our obedience. Now now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Obedience to God improves our lives in many, many ways. But it is not a means to an end. We are obedient to God for one reason. He deserves it. I certainly think that Daniel wanted to live. But I'm convinced he was much less concerned about whether he lived or died than he was about being obedient to God for however long he lived. And that should be our view of obedience. Not a means to an end, but something we give to God because he deserves it for as long as we live, no matter our circumstances and whether we're ever delivered from them or not. Be courageously obedient. To God. Now I just want to wrap this up with a, a very quick word to our dads on Father's Day. Daniel provides one of the very best examples of the best thing that you can do for your children. One of the surest ways that you can be a good dad. One of the surest ways that you can make an impact on your kids for now and eternity And here it is, be a man who courageously obeys God with no fear of man. You will be a better dad to your kids if you are courageously obedient to God, even if it means you lose your job. You will be a better dad to your kids if you are courageously obedient to God, even if it means you have less money. You'll be a better dad if you live as an example of courageous obedience to God, obedience to God above all else with no fear of man. May every single one of us here today follow the example of Daniel and live lives that are courageously obedient to God. Let's stand.